when the shooting had stopped in Croke Park on November 21st, 1920, 12 of the Tipperary football team were corralled together and lined up against a wall at the Hill 16 end of the ground. A few of them had blended into the stampeding crowd and escaped. One, Mick Hogan, lay dead on the field. A group of armed black and tan police officers kept guard. The mood was murderous. One black and tan produced a picture of the football team and walked along the line. Look at them well, he said. You won't see them again. Some of the players prepared to die. Then an officer appeared from nowhere. Major Edward Lawrence Mills was the commander of the auxiliary force, the recently established officer corps sent to support the RIC and Black and Tans. He walked the line of players, speaking softly. They intend to shoot every one of you, he said. Something must be done. He stopped at Bill Ryan, the Tipperary right half-back. How long was the game on? he asked. What was the score? You must be cold. He took an overcoat from a spectator and slung it over Ryan's shoulders. Then he turned to the black and tans. These men are under my care, he said. I'm taking them in a body to their hotel to have their belongings searched. He marched the players away from their death back to the changing rooms. He asked a Tipperary official what they knew about the killing that morning of 14 British agents by Michael Collins's IRA squads. He had seen them reported in the stop press editions of the newspapers, the man replied. Jack Shouldice, chairman of the Leinster Council and in charge of the money at Croke Park that day, was also there. Shouldice was active in the IRA and his diary raised suspicions. It was handed to Mills, who flicked through the pages. I don't see anything worth special interrogation here, he said, before leaning into Shouldice. There's been enough shooting and bloodshed here today, he said. I advise you get away as quickly as you can. That evening, Mills went back to the auxiliary headquarters at Beggar's Bush and wrote a report detailing the original plans and what he had seen at Croke Park. I arranged with Major Dudley, who was in charge of a party of about 100 RIC, to split up the two forces so that there would be an equal number posted on the four gates of the ground to search people as they came out. The method to be adopted was that as soon as possible they were to make the onlookers file out of the ground. I saw men in a tender in front of me trying to get out of their car and heard some of them shouting about an ambush. Seeing they were excited, I stopped my car, jumped out and went to see what was the matter. At this moment, I heard a considerable amount of rifle fire. As no shots were coming from the football field and all the RIC constables seemed excited and out of hand, I rushed along and stopped the firing with the assistance of Major Fillery, who was in the car with me. I went round the ground and found two children being carried out, apparently dead. I found one female who'd been trampled to death, also a man who had apparently died the same way. I saw a few wounded men and I got some sense into the crowd. I got the DMP to get ambulances for the wounded. We found no arms on any of the people attending the match. I did not see any need for any firing at all and the indiscriminate firing absolutely spoilt any chance of getting hold of any people in possession of firearms. 
the men of the auxiliary division did not fire. The casualties I personally saw were six dead and four wounded. Two of the dead were apparently trampled to death. Signed, E.L. Mills. The letter was never seen again. Instead, the authorities fitted together a different story to redirect responsibility onto the spectators. Instead of firing coming from outside the ground, the first shots, they alleged, came from inside the ground. The first instinct among the establishment was to protect themselves. The following year, an Irishman was found murdered near Mills's barracks in Dublin. A service revolver was found on the body that originated from the barracks. So what was the story? Was the man who stole an army revolver killed by a soldier or a policeman in self-defence? Mills traced the revolver to his company. After checking the ledger, he found the gun had been taken by one of his own men. All evidence pointed to the gun being used to kill the man, then being planted on the body. Mills took his evidence to the authorities, but no one was arrested and no investigation took place. Mills was removed from the service soon after. From 1920, the British in Ireland were in self-preservation mode, which raises questions for us to consider today. Who were these people? Who were the British in Ireland in 1920? Did they want to be there anymore? Had they any more appetite to understand or make peace with the rising tensions across the country? From the police to the politicians, we're going to meet the key men, and they were all men, obliged to link those two pillars of law and order. And we'll learn how the seeds for the Croke Park massacre were sown long before the first bullet was fired. So join us for the second episode of The Bloodied Field. By late 1920, British rule in Ireland was on a knife edge. The War of Independence that began in January 1919 was nearly two years old. The Royal Irish Constabulary, the national police force that had been embedded for decades in local communities and families, was in retreat. At the beginning of 1919, RIC numbers stood at 9,676. Between then and the disbanding of the force in June 1922, 765 officers would be killed. 16 more would commit suicide. Vast areas of the countryside had been emptied of RIC barracks by persistent guerrilla attacks by the IRA. The police now consolidated behind heavily fortified barracks in urban areas. In March 1920, the British Army in Ireland numbered around 20,000. They were undertrained, weakened by the First World War, inexperienced, and generally low on morale. Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Shaw, the Commander in Chief of the Military in Ireland, had finally run out of patience and recommended full martial law across Ireland. But the politicians in London, they weren't ready to concede that. A Home Rule Bill for Ireland was on the table. Martial law equated to an admission 
that Britain had lost control of Ireland as a civil, functioning society. They needed someone to run a security force that blended police with military. And that's where Neville McCready came in. During World War I, McCready had served as Adjutant General to the British Expeditionary Force in France and served from 1916 as Adjutant General to the Forces, one of the most senior posts in the British Army. At the end of the war, Prime Minister David Lloyd George had appointed McCready Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police at Scotland Yard. This was the blend of experiences Lloyd George was seeking now. One day in March 1920, McCready received a phone call from Downing Street while lunching at the Garrett Club in London. The Prime Minister wanted to speak with him. McCready instinctively knew why. The previous December, the IRA in Dublin had attempted to assassinate Lord John French, Lord Lieutenant and Viceroy of Ireland, and McCready's superior in France during the war. McCready's entry in his diary that night foresaw what was coming. Will Lloyd George want me to go there, he wrote. When McCready arrived at Downing Street, Lloyd George got to the point. Go to Ireland, take charge of the military, take over the RIC as well if you wish. McCready frowned. The RIC needs the attention of one man, he replied. This was not the job he wanted, but his sense of duty compelled him. His connections to Ireland ran deep. His wife, Sophia, was from a Cork family. In 1892, McCready was sent from his army base in India to Dublin. He liked some architectural aspects of Victorian Dublin, but the place bored him, and the people, they drove him nuts. In many ways, McCready's entire life seemed trapped between his own wishes for himself and the wishes of others. Soldiering wasn't even necessarily what he wanted to do. His father, William, came from a family of stage actors and was an actor of such distinction himself that Alfred Lord Tennyson dedicated a poem in his honour to mark McCready's retirement. Neville's great-great-grandfather, Sir William Beechey, was painter to King George III. The arts and performance were in the family blood, but his father never allowed McCready to act. He never even allowed him into a theatre. As an actor, his father knew the agonies of rejection and criticism, and he didn't want that for his son. And yet, Neville was reared with acting and artists all around him. His father read stories aloud to the family every night. He taught Neville elocution, forcing his son to endure the same ritual for every syllable. Neville opening his mouth three times until his jaw cracked, carefully and slowly moving his tongue and lips to ensure the correct enunciation of each letter. His father knew Lucius Booth, father of John Wilkes Booth, the future murderer of Abraham Lincoln. He knew Lucius Booth as the man who shot and wounded an actor in a pantomime in Bristol. Charles Dickens was a family friend. One night, when Dickens visited their home in Cheltenham for a dinner, Neville was allowed to sit at the table. As dessert was served, Dickens asked him what food he might like from the table. Neville pointed at a bowl of olives. 
Dickens laughed and said he could take one, but he must eat it whether he liked it or not. McCready didn't eat another olive till he went to Palestine as a soldier in 1884. The military dominated the other side of their family heritage. Neville's uncle Edward had served at the Battle of Waterloo. Neville's grandfather had hosted Admiral Nelson for dinner the night before he left on the journey that ended with the Battle of Trafalgar. McCready was in Ireland when war broke out in 1914, preparing British troops in Belfast for a potential outbreak of civil war over Home Rule. McCready's memoirs, written in the years after he left Ireland, captured his fundamental dislike of Ireland and the Irish. The famed sense of humour never tickled his funny bone. If anything, he said, anyone who had to deal with the Irish needed a strong sense of humour to manage them. In McCready resided much of the British feeling on Ireland in 1920. They felt stuck, confused, unable to see the wood for the trees, never mind the IRA men fighting a guerrilla war from behind the hedgerows. By then, McCready had already seen enough of Ireland and experienced enough of the Irish to know he had no time for the place. To get an idea of Republican thinking, he read the book by Sinn Féin leader Arthur Griffith, The Resurrection of Hungary, a parallel for Ireland. He found no talk of armed uprising here, but a system of two governments under one king and dry political compromise. He spoke to Irish MPs and clergy, lawyers, peers of the realm, even widows of the 1916 leaders. One woman on the street, claiming lineage back to Oliver Cromwell, offered him this advice. Shoot them all, General. Shoot them all. Ideal, thought McCready, but not practical. In September 1919, with the RIC woefully weakened, adverts had appeared in the weekly summary, the official RIC newspaper, offering police work specifically to ex-servicemen. The pay was good, so were the allowances, and the pension was comparable with the highest payable to any police force in the United Kingdom. The first recruits in Ireland appeared in early 1920, wearing khaki-coloured uniforms sometimes combined with blue tunics. A newspaper reporter in Limerick who saw a group of them compared them to the old Kerry Beagles that once ran with the Scartine Hunt, the Black and Tans. These new police stood out from the beginning in every way. Most of them had survived the horrors of World War I but arrived in Ireland completely unprepared for a guerrilla war where the IRA hid in plain sight. So the Black and Tans went after the IRA like beagles. When the IRA attacked the barracks, the Black and Tans burned down a shop or an entire village. When the IRA shaved the heads of women stepping out with policemen, the Black and Tans shaved the heads of suspected Sinn Féin activists. If the IRA attacked an RIC barracks, the police targeted local social hubs like the creamery. If policemen were shot or killed, the Black and Tans wreaked the sort of terrifying revenge that inspired the stories passed down to generations to this day. In June 1920, Lieutenant Colonel Bryce Ferguson Smith, 
RIC Divisional Commander for Munster, made a speech in the Stoll County Kerry that appeared to confirm that the rules of the game had changed. We must take the offensive and beat Sinn Féin at its own tactics. If a police barracks is burned, or if the barracks already occupied is not suitable, then the best house in the locality is to be commandeered, the occupants thrown into the gutter. Let them die there, the more the merrier. You may make mistakes occasionally, and innocent persons may be shot, but that cannot be helped. You are bound to get the right parties sometime. The more you shoot, the better I will like you, and I assure you no policeman will get into trouble for shooting any man. This was state-sponsored terror. Some RIC officers resigned their commissions. Some joined the IRA. Less than a month later, six IRA men cornered Smith in a club in Cork City. Colonel, we're not your order to shoot on sight, one said. Well, you're in sight now. Prepare. He was shot dead through the head, heart and chest. To deal with the IRA's guerrilla war, the British security forces needed to become more mobile. On May 11th, 1920, McCready, Lloyd George, Winston Churchill and Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson, Chief of the Imperial General Staff, met to talk about the IRA. They all demanded action. Make a list of Sinn Féiners in every district, Wilson said, posted on the local church door. Whenever a policeman is shot, he went on, Pick five and shoot them. Churchill picked up the rope. It is monstrous. We have more than 200 murders and no one hung. After a person is caught, he should pay the penalty within a week. Lloyd George had supported the idea of summary hangings a few months before. Terror to be met by greater terror. But now he favoured increasing taxes to punish the Irish. Churchill then proposed something different. Another police force. A special force, he called them. A temporary force raised from the thousands of ex-army officers in Britain. McCready was initially reluctant, but Churchill prevailed. Being a member of the new auxiliary division of the RIC was a lucrative job. The wages were a pound a day for a six-month contract twice the wages of an RIC constable or a black and tan. When that money was raised to a guinea a day in October 1920, to be an auxiliary made you the best paid policeman in the world. They first appeared in Ireland in July 1920, wearing dark blue uniforms with a Glengarry cap, bearing a harp insignia, plus fours and a bandolier across their chests. In time, 2,214 auxiliaries would serve in Ireland, alongside nearly 10,000 black and tans. Many of the early auxiliary recruits were war heroes, decorated for their bravery in battle. They travelled in transport vehicles called Crossley Tenders and were trained on a six-week course in the Curra military camp in County Kildare. There, the auxiliaries behaved as they mean to go on. The first round of recruits quickly racked up over £300 in debts at a local pub. Conditions at the camp were grim, catering was almost non-existent and there was tension with the local RIC from the beginning. Brigadier Frank Percy Crozier 
was appointed their commander-in-chief. To him, the disarray at the Curra was a portent of things to come. It all played into the hands of disorder, he said, before a shot was fired. Crozier had deep Irish roots. His family were soldiers, land agents, magistrates and landowners in Ireland going back generations. He had been raised in Dublin and taken his holidays in Limerick. As a soldier, Crozier could be wild, borderline reckless, but his superiors liked his aggression and his ferocity in battle. He fought in the Boer War and was training a unit of the Ulster Volunteers in Belfast when World War I broke out. He became a major with the 9th Battalion of the Royal Irish Rifles, part of the 107th Brigade, 36th Division. They were called the Shankill Road Boys. His admiration for them was matched by their loyalty to him. Even when his attitude to war brought them into dire danger, he constantly gathered raiding parties to attack German trenches. He often defied orders in battle, throwing himself into the fray. A callous, overbearing martinet, one lieutenant said of his attention-seeking raids. He seemed the right choice to command the auxiliaries, a force sent to Ireland to take the war to the IRA. But Crozier himself predicted problems. He saw the drinking he despised and the lack of discipline he couldn't control and sensed trouble. Ireland likes a gentleman and is accustomed to be governed by gentlemen, he wrote to his cousin in Limerick before he left for Dublin. What are we in for? By midsummer 1920, Ireland was in flames. Atrocities on both sides were cruel and getting worse. Martial law was discussed again by the British as a solution, but the collective will didn't exist to concede that Ireland was out of their control. Neville McCready urged politicians to visit Ireland and try to understand the nature of this guerrilla war that Britain had never really faced before. He hated the Black and Tans, but he also saw reprisals against the IRA and the wider community as unavoidable. Already, McCready had ordered officers to carry revolvers and travel in small groups when off duty. McCready himself always carried a gun. An automatic pistol, he said, became as constant and as friendly a companion as a watch. As an attempt to stiffen the rule of law in Ireland, in August 1920, the Restoration of Order in Ireland Act gave McCready power as the head of the military to dispense justice. But it fell between two stools. Court-martial replaced trial by jury only where the IRA were highly active. Arrests increased, meaning more IRA men went on the run, effectively becoming full-time fighters. McCready suggested concentration camps to house suspects after any IRA atrocity. Dublin Castle, the ancient seat of British government in Ireland, was locked down. ID cards were required to gain access and the square at the heart of the castle was illuminated every night by searchlights, catching glimpse of auxiliary raiding parties heading out looking for trouble. But the British were making progress in some ways. The auxiliaries were proving a serious opponent to the IRA. And in May 1920, the Combined Intelligence Service under General Sir Armand Winter began to find ways to wreck the IRA from the inside. Agents, drawn mainly from the intelligence network developed during the war and ex-soldiers, were put through a six-week course in Hounslow, London, 
before being shipped to Ireland. Between 60 and 100 agents arrived in Ireland between May 1920 and February 1921, and they made quick progress. Many of them hung out at the Cairo Café and bars around Grafton Street in Dublin city centre. They took on new identities and blended into the crowd just like the IRA, soaking up information. One day in October 1920, three of Michael Collins's closest allies, Frank Thornton, Tom Cullen and Frank Soren, were in Kids Bar near Grafton Street. David Nelligan, a Dublin Metropolitan Police Constable and Collins' key man inside Dublin Castle, introduced them to auxiliaries and spies as potential informers. One British spy started talking. Did they know Liam Tobin, Tom Cullen, Frank Thornton? These were the men they needed to grab to get to Collins himself. All they were missing, he said, was someone to point them out. Cullen and Thornton, sitting across the table, suddenly realised how close the British were getting. Liam Tobin was head of operations at the IRA's intelligence office a few minutes walk away on Crow Street. Her information from a network of secretaries, typists, civil servants, hotel staff, policemen, maids and all the small, usually invisible cogs in civilian life was filtered into information to plan IRA attacks and find targets. In the first two weeks of November, Thornton was arrested and held for 10 days. Tobin and Cullen were also arrested, questioned and released. If the British were struggling to find the IRA on the battlefield, they were starting to unravel them in different ways. The IRA were on the ropes. Collins needed to figure a way for them to strike back. It was time to target the people he called the particular ones. Join us next time on the Bloodied Field podcast when we meet the Tipperary football team who were fighting with soldiers and dicing with danger ever before they reached Croke Park on Bloody Sunday. Thanks for listening. The Bloodied Field podcast is written and produced by me, Michael Foley, and edited by Andrew Foley. We had three special guests on the show. John Evans played Major Edward Mills, Karen C. Foley voiced the angry woman who urged Neville McCready to kill them all. And Dave Evans played Lieutenant Colonel Bryce Ferguson-Smith. You can find us and follow this full series of podcasts at gaa.ie forward slash bloody Sunday or on Spotify. You can also contact us on Twitter at bloodiedfieldp1 or email us at bloodiedfieldpodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do spread the word. This is a story we feel everyone needs to hear.